Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the True Blue Crime Podcast. This is your host, Dan, and I will be covering episode three. This is part two of the Superbike Murders. So just getting into the podcast itself here, I just want to mention uh, this is, as I said, episode three. So if you have not listened to episode two, that is part one of the Superbike Murders, you may want to do that. Uh, they will stand somewhat independently uh, as I'm covering a different series of crimes, but it'll be better if you listen to them in order, and then I will tie it all up with a uh, discussion of the suspect in part three of the Superbike Murders. But as for now, we're going to be doing the Superbike Murders part two. I want to thank everyone who has liked and followed my Facebook page at True Blue Crime Productions. The website for the show is truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you have the capabilities, please support me at Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. Any and all support is greatly appreciated. I do want to take a second to thank someone that identified as Tactical Lumberjack for leaving a five star review and an amazing rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it is great to see that the work that's being put into this podcast is being enjoyed by people. So uh, I did also this morning, I was able to release this uh, podcast onto all of the major podcast platforms. So if you have a friend that listens to True Crime Podcasts, uh, you can mention True Blue Crime to them. I know there is a older version of True Blue Crime. It looks like it was an Australian show that uh, stopped making episodes back in 2021 i want to say so if they find that it's not going to be me but uh true blue crime uh, on all the major podcasts people can find me there and uh, rate review listen follow Um, i with the facebook page i am doing daily updates talking about the episodes that I'm working on episodes that I'll have coming out in the future so again if you follow and like that uh, the information will be on the Facebook page so uh, just real quick we'll talk about episode two uh, the Superbike Murders part one so in that episode we covered the quadruple homicide that occurred in Chesney South Carolina at the Superbike Motorsports shop as of that was Again, 2003, and so as of the episode, or the crime that we're talking about today, uh, which occurred in 2016, there's kind of a 13-year lull there in the investigation into the Superbike murders. So uh, we're kind of fast-forwarding in this storyline to 2016 to talk about the case that broke the Superbike murders case. So we're going to be talking about August 31st of 2016 in the town of Woodruff, South Carolina. So there are going to be four victims again in this case, uh, just like Superbike murders. However, this is going to be three homicides and one surviving victim. So uh, we'll just cover the victims real quickly just so we can, when we talk about them later, we're going to know who we're referencing. First victim is going to be Charlie or Charles Carver. I saw his name displayed both ways in different news stories so i don't know if he goes by charlie or charles but gonna refer to him as charles for the rest of the episode Uh, he was 32 years old then there's kayla brown who's 30 she's the surviving victim in this case and then megan coxie who's 26 years old and johnny coxie who's 29 years old Um, we'll talk about the suspect bring him up briefly later but i won't get too much into 
into his uh, background or involvement tying everything together until part three. So timeline of events here in we're talking 2016, Kayla and Charles have been dating for a few months. They end up moving in together, but as typical of, of the late 20s, early 30s, just met each other, moved in together. Um, money's tight for them. Kayla, however, had met the successful real estate broker about five years earlier through a ex-boyfriend of hers. And somehow, I couldn't find in the research how, but somehow she makes a connection with this guy basically looking to see if he needs any work or needs any help. He invites her and Charles to come out to a property that he owns that he says he needs to have some work done on. So on August 31st of 2016, Kayla and Charles head out to this property to do some work. This property is a 95-acre rural property kind of, I don't know, in Minnesota, we'd call it like a hobby farm or something along those lines. It's not big enough to be a farm on its own, but it's definitely at 95 acres is a pretty decent size of land. But yeah, this this guy owns his property. Supposedly, he wants some, some work done on it. So they arrive. Uh, after they arrive, uh, the man tells them to wait outside. He needs to grab something from the house. He goes into the house that's on the property and he comes back out with a handgun and shoots Charlie in the chest three times. I read in the articles he later would claim that Charlie was smart-mouthed or something along those lines, but as we're going to see, it, I believe this was his plan the whole time. So, Kayla is now in a state of shock. She just watched this man shoot her boyfriend three times in the chest. The man grabs onto Kayla, handcuffs her, and then hauls her into this large green storage container on the property. And there, there's pictures of this online, but the container would be something like you would see, you know, on the back of a, of a, or being hauled by a train or by a large ship, kind of one of those shipping container size, size uh, metal sheds. Uh, so he hauls her into this shed and ends up chaining her. He's got chains attached to the walls of this shed. He ends up chaining her to the wall near kind of a makeshift bed and, and a little living area in there and this begins uh, you know her, I guess her nightmare began when Charles was shot but this begins uh, a long-term nightmare for for Kayla so it's not gonna be long before friends and family are gonna wonder what happened to Kayla and Charles first off Charles mom who he has a very close relationship with uh, she begins or continues to text him, I'm assuming, on August 31st and is not hearing back from him. So by the next day, September 1st, she's already going to be reporting him missing because she can't get a hold of her son and this is not like him at all. Kayla's friends, mean, meanwhile, they're also trying to get a hold of Kayla. They're texting her, calling her. She's not responding. She's not answering. And they start leaving notes on her car. Eventually, her mother goes to the apartment that, that Charles and her or Charles and Kayla share and find the couple's dog abandoned in the apartment with no food or water. Um, Kayla's mother says that this is not like her daughter at all, that, they, that she treated this dog like her baby and that they would never have abandoned the, the dog, especially without food or water. And this kind of take a little sidebar here and discuss 
missing persons in general. There's a lot of true crime podcasts out there about missing persons, whether it be missing persons that end up being found that they are murdered or just missing persons in general. And there's a lot of negative um, viewpoints towards how police handle missing persons. And I can tell you, I took probably at least 100 missing persons reports during my 17 years as a police officer. Now, Minnesota does have a requirement that you will take, will do a police report for anybody who's reported missing. This changed over the years. Um, when I first started, I believe we, we could still kind of work with a 24-hour rule. I mean, kids never, if it's somebody under the age of 18, it's immediately considered either runaway or missing person, so you take a report. But once somebody turns 18, what we have to realize is you have the freedom in America to go missing if you want to. If you're 18 years old and, and you're not abandoning a child or, or something along those lines, there's nothing illegal about you deciding you just don't want to be around anybody else or you want to leave your family or friends or whatever it may be so there's a real gray area there for reporting somebody missing and having any type of law enforcement action in regards to it it, it doesn't mean that you can't try to report the person missing and, and as i said now most places do police departments and states do require the police departments to take that missing persons report but i saw on several occasions i know of several occasions where you know in the cases of say a couple's getting a divorce or the one partner thinks the other partner's cheating on them or whatever it may be they'll report the other person as missing just to get police to basically track this person down and while these are some extreme examples. It is examples of where police can get themselves in trouble by basically acting or, or violating somebody's rights to disappear or be left alone. And so, again, it's it's a real gray area. It's a real, you know, seesaw of how much do you pursue these missing persons if, in fact, they want to be missing. Now, obviously certain factors can be taken into account and that's the example here and why i did the, the kind of step aside here is you know if somebody's caring for a child or in this case a beloved pet and they suddenly go missing and there's no care plan in place for this child or this pet or or anything along those lines i mean those are going to be indicators to law to to law enforcement and the friends and family that you know something's not right here that that this is behavior outside of the norm for people because some people do like to just disappear for a few days at a time and those are the people that it's that's difficult to do a missing persons report over because you know especially if they've shown up again and a lot of the times these are people that have either mental health issues or drug or alcohol dependencies or both and it's just it's common for them to you know kind of disappear for a few days at a time and then reappear back to the family and and those are the ones that are tough for law enforcement i should say there are more clear-cut examples where law enforcement can recognize that something's not right and that's where we are with this case we've now got you know a, a young couple both of them are missing nobody can contact either of them and they've abandoned something that that means a lot to them 
And so law enforcement is going to take this seriously, um, but in this case, they're kind of stuck not knowing where or 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 how these this couple disappeared. So Kayla's reported missing on nine five. So Charles is reported missing on nine one. Kayla's reporting missing on nine five. It's the case is going to get even more strange because shortly after they go missing uh, bizarre facebook messages and posts begin appearing on their facebook page uh, there's going to be posts about them getting married them expecting a child them buying a house and this was uh, as i mentioned they had just met a few few months prior and, and just decided to move in together so not that these life events could not have happened in the short amount of time since they went missing but it just seemed so out of the norm that if they were alive and well, that they would be posting these things to Facebook without having any contact with friends or family. It just didn't match their personalities or their timeline or, or anything along those lines. So these Facebook messages are appearing at the same time. There's, uh, or sorry, Facebook posts are appearing, and at the same time, these Facebook messages start coming into friends. Um, the Facebook messages are reportedly from Charles to friends saying that he needs money for drugs, which the friends are all saying they didn't know Charles to use drugs. So this was completely out of out of the norm for him and something he had never done before. So, again, as the weeks kind of after their disappearance are, are ticking by, everybody's just feeling like something is clearly not right here. And so police are continuing to act on the information that they're getting. They do issue a search warrant to Facebook to get access to messages and account information and whatnot from both Charles's and Kayla's accounts. Uh, another sidebar here, apparently Facebook did not get back to them on their search warrant request until October 14th, which was about a month after these search warrants were filed. Uh, this is a frustrating thing as both a law enforcement officer and whether you're a victim of a crime or family members of somebody who's missing, like in this case, is there's again a legal gray area these companies do have to respond to subpoenas and search warrants by law but oftentimes some of the bigger companies out there um, i won't name names but obviously we've already said facebook here tend to take a long time to get that information back and and sometimes to the point of bordering on it being outside of the legal aspects when they have a certain amount of days, it'll literally be the last day or sometimes past the last day in which they were supposed to respond to this this buy. So just a frustrating aspect um, when people wonder why investigations take so long or why police can't act on things faster. Sometimes there's outside factors that that play into these delays and whatnot in investigations. So in this case, a lot of it had to do with Facebook and had to do with information that was contained within these Facebook messages. So eventually when the, the officers do get the Facebook logs, they're able to find out that Charles and Kayla talked amongst themselves on Facebook Messenger about this job out on this property on August 31st. So 
We're now in the middle, mid to late October, and I know they've done cell phone pings. That's also another thing that, again, as we talked about earlier, borders on, you know, the gray area of, of missing persons. Police officers are not supposed to ping cell phones of somebody unless there's a declared emergency of some sort. That person is known to have medical issues, you know, something along those lines. So the fact they're able to get cell phone pings from this case is good, but also cell phone pings are not always super reliable when it comes to the actual location. It's gotten better over time, but this is 2016, so this is seven years ago. I can remember getting several cell phone pings that would just tell me they're within three miles somewhere southwest of a of a cell phone tower, or I might not even get a direction. So a three mile radius of a cell phone tower. Well, if this cell phone tower is in a populated area, three miles might include 50,000 people and, and 10,000 buildings. So again, I don't know how exact, I think I saw a, a later on map of, of where they believe these cell phone pings were coming from. And it was a rather small area around this town of Woodruff. But again, this is a ping showing the last location that these cell phones were accessed. And that does not mean that Charles and Kayla are still there. That does not mean that, you know, they didn't turn their phones off or somebody didn't turn their phones off and, and move them. And when you're talking about a large area, it's going to be difficult to use just a cell phone ping to actually physically locate someone or something. So basically everything is pointed towards this property somewhere in the area of Woodruff. They They've got this, the Facebook messages now saying that they were going to go to this property. They've got the cell phone ping showing them in that area roughly on the day that the, any the people have last seen them. So on October 18th, a few days after they get the results from the search warrant, the detectives from the area in which Kayla and Charles were missing from head up to this area of Woodruff to work with local investigators there on the missing persons case. They've got the cell phone pings. And they also had, at this point, I found in the research, a third-party tip saying that Kayla would be found buried on a 100-acre property. Now, in looking at this area on the map, it looks pretty rural, so I'd assume there's a lot of 100-acre properties. But according to the research, uh, investigators kind of, I guess, narrowed it down to only this one uh, it was a 95-acre property that fit the description of, of where this third party was saying that Kayla would be found. Um, so they did an aerial search of the property, and I don't know if this was done with, with drones or helicopter or, or airplane. It just said they did an aerial search looking for Charles and, and Kayla left in Charles' car. So they're looking for the car. They're looking for any sign that... The, the couple could be still at this property or and again we have assumed foul play in this case mainly because of the continued facebook messages and reach and facebook posts and and whatnot oftentimes we can have a couple or or an individual go missing they can park their car somewhere 
And just because their car is found, that doesn't mean that that they are then suddenly found. A, a lot of cars are found abandoned, and, and the person is never seen from again. So they're just they're looking on this property, hoping to find the vehicle, which would then give them a reason to to get access to that property. And uh, eventually, though, with the even without locating. Charles's vehicle just with the third-party tip they had the cell phones and the Facebook messages between Kayla and Charles investigators felt they had enough for a search warrant for this property so they write up and are granted a search warrant for both the owner's home uh, which is in a separate location this is kind of a, a hobby um, property for this owner so they write up a search warrant for the home and then for this property and they execute that search warrant on November 3rd of 2016. So on that day, they go to both locations at the same time, hoping to locate the owner at either his house or if he's on the property, um, you know, they, they want to just, they want to locate him so that he can be questioned. And they also want to have access to all locations that, that they find. Um, so he's located at his house and he's detained there in question while officer or investigators are searching both his house and this property. Um, I, I read in there as he's being questioned, he's denying knowing anything about what they're talking about. You know, he he's he he's freely answering their questions, but he's just not giving them any information. He's not not he's he's acting like you know, he doesn't know anything. So there's on this property, there's kind of a large barn. I read that they searched the barn and found a lofted area in the barn with a bed that had chains on it. So they're, they're starting to kind of clue in on they're at the right property and something's not right here. So then they come across this, this shipping container and the shipping container had been painted kind of a dark forest green so that would blend in. Um, so again, that aerial search, even if they saw the barn and, and whatnot, it would look like a typical kind of hobby property and it wouldn't be something that they would immediately kind of question because it, it would just look somewhat normal from the air but on the ground this container looks out of place and they see that it's locked as they approach the container they hear a cry for help coming out from inside the container so they bust the padlock off the outside of the container with a sledgehammer walk into the container and in there they find an alive and very scared Kayla and she's still chained up to that to the wall on this makeshift bed um, they immediately radio over to the other officers that are with uh, the owner of the property and he's taken into custody so at this point I will identify the owner um, by name but again I'm not gonna dive into all the details I thought about diving into all the details of his life in this episode but i found found out there's just so much going on with him and then to try to tie all of the crimes together plus cover him plus finish up what the rest of the stuff i need to talk about on this episode it would just be easier to do a, a three-part so so the owner is identified as todd colehap he's 45 years old and he's a known sex offender due to a incident from his childhood that we'll cover next uh, in the next segment but he had been released from prison in 2001 and kind of built a, a successful real estate uh, life for himself 
uh, since being released from prison, and he had enough money to, to buy the house that he was living in uh, when they arrested him, as well as this property um, out there in kind of the middle of nowhere. Um, so they, they, they now have Cole up in custody, and meanwhile they're going to want to get as much information from Kayla as they can. So Kayla's taken to the hospital, but it's about a 30-minute ride to the hospital, and during this ride she's telling investigators that she knows Todd. She explains how she had met him you know, five years prior via an ex-boyfriend and how he had offered them work to come out to the property and then how her and Charles had come out. Uh, she tells uh, investigators that, that that Todd shot Charles three times in the chest that very first day. And then from then on, after she was chained into the into the container, Todd would come out there every single day. He'd take, he'd un uh, chain her from the wall, bring her into the house on the property, uh, rape her repeatedly, and then return her back to this this container. And this went on for from August 31st until November 3rd. She gave investigators information. As I said, we're talking about a two months, almost a two month span here. Uh, that she was held held captive, so she's going to have a lot of information on Todd. Uh, she tells investigators that Todd told her that he had killed other people. Uh, he claimed he killed four other people on his property and buried their bodies around. He said that he was a contract killer for the government that killed the drug dealers, and then he told her that he killed four people at a bike shop back in 2003 so this is where the tie-in is gonna gonna begin that you know he's now gonna be looked at as being the 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 man in the leather coat that the last customer saw at the superbike shop Um, it's not gonna be proven yet and and we'll talk about more in part three but at this point investigators are, are are suddenly realizing that they've got both a mass murderer and a serial killer in custody. Eventually, uh, they're going to question Todd, who's going to admit to a lot of this stuff. Again, we'll talk about in part three, but he is going to walk investigators onto the property, show them where he buried uh, Charles. Uh, At some point during this, I'm assuming before he showed officers where he buried Charles, uh, he confessed to killing another couple very similar to what he did with Charles and Kayla. Uh, Todd stated he had kidnapped this couple that he identified as Johnny and Megan Coxie. Johnny and Megan Coxie were panhandlers kind of in in the area. Uh, they were a married couple that obviously had a lot of issues. They had had a child together about six months prior to them going missing, and they went missing in December 2015. But they, So they had a child in the middle of 2015, but the child was taken away from them uh, because the child tested positive for heroin, and Megan admitted to doing heroin while pregnant with this child. So Child Protective Services takes the baby away, but from the sounds of it, they were... Although they had their issues, they were not 
according to friends and family, people that were going to just disappear. So in December of 2015, Megan contacts her mother from jail, um, rested on, on, on some charge, and wants to be bailed out because she's working and wants to continue to work and provide so that she can eventually get their, their child back. That's the last anybody ever heard from Megan. Uh, couples reported missing. Unfortunately, I think this missing person's case is going to fall into where I talked about earlier, kind of the people that do go off the radar for a while that family or friends might not hear from, and that's in the case of whether it's mental health or drugs or both. You know, people that are afflicted with these issues can often disappear, and whether that's be because they're in prison, whether it's because they're, you know, hanging out with other people that are, are living that lifestyle and they don't want their friends and family to know about it, that they've relapsed, whatever it may be, I couldn't find a lot of information about how serious the police took the missing person's case of Megan and Johnny, but just based on the, the, the brief history that I did find um, with their drug use and, and multiple arrests and whatnot, I just had to assume that they likely, their disappearance would have likely been written off more as a, well, maybe they just went somewhere else to, to, to try to start a new life and fell back into drugs. Maybe they got arrested somewhere, something along those lines. And, and it just wasn't treated the same way as, as Kayla and Charles' disappearance was. But ultimately, Todd does show investigators where he buried uh, Megan and Johnny. Their bodies are identified as as positively as Megan and Johnny. The autopsy revealed that Johnny had been shot several times in the torso and Megan had been shot once in the head. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of research out there or investigation and even if Todd did confess to this uh, just based on some of the stuff he downplayed in regards to what we know happened with Kayla and Charles, um, I wouldn't really believe anything he said about this anyway. I'm, I'm just looking at the uh, MO, how he handled the Kayla and Charles case, and I have to imagine or have to believe that Megan and Johnny's case was very similar, that he likely invited them over. And, and I'm sorry, the connection between Todd and Megan and Johnny is that Megan worked as a waitress at Waffle House, and it was a Waffle House that Todd would frequent. And Todd was known for going into this Waffle House and trying to entice the female waitresses to come back to his house with him by leaving extravagantly large tips for, for what he was getting from the bills. And this, this creeped out. All the female waitresses, and I guess they went to management and asked that Todd be trespassed or banned from the restaurant. The restaurant, I guess, didn't agree with the female waitresses, but they did make a policy that only male servers could serve Todd if he came in the restaurant. So, But my guess is that he developed some type of a relationship with Megan due to her job at this Waffle House and knowing that she was trying to get her life back together and, and had issues with drugs, money would have been an enticing thing to, and he likely would have offered 
both Megan and Johnny money to come work on his property just like he did with with Charles and Kayla and then when they arrived he likely would have done the same exact thing to Johnny shot him in the chest in front of Megan and then this is where the coroner said that based on the the body's conditions they believed that they had been in the ground for roughly 11 months which would put you know from November back to the beginning of of the year which is when Megan and Johnny went missing likely due to the fact that that's a rough estimate you know that you can't pinpoint an exact date and time that that Johnny was shot versus Megan was shot there is a possibility that that Megan was kept captive for a period of time after Johnny was shot and that eventually either Todd decided to kill Megan for whatever reason or it could have been right away he decided to shoot Megan in the head if, if she wasn't cooperating but ultimately they're they're both murdered sometime in early early 2016 according to the coroner so those are the known victims of uh, Todd Colehep in regards to the property there in Woodruff, South Carolina. You got Megan and Johnny and uh, Charles, and then the surviving victim, Kayla. Now, as I've done before, I'm going to kind of break down, if I was investigating this, what I'm looking for at the crime scene. This is a little bit different than Superbike and, and some of the other crime scenes we're going to see because this is not a whodunit. It's, it's pretty clear cut at this point, and I believe Todd has even confessed rather quickly after Kayla is found. I mean, we've, we've got a survivor, thankfully, in Kayla that is able to identify her attacker. She's able to identify, you know, he shot Charles right in front of her, so there's not going to be a whole lot of who done it in this case to a certain degree but that does not mean that the there is no need for crime scene investigation here um, many suspects once they get a defense attorney once they you know get a taste for prison or whatever it may be turn from very cooperative um, people in custody to very uncooperative or or you know they're going to make the investigation as difficult as possible. So when I look at this, you know, you've got, uh, I'm sure, Todd's house, there's going to be some some evidence there, um, especially, uh, you know, I'm going to get down into co the computer forensics aspect of things. Um, clearly somebody had access to either their phones or at least their Facebook accounts. So there's going to be evidence on some form of electronic communication device that Todd possesses it's going to show logins to their Facebook accounts that making these posts sending these messages whatever after we know Charles is, is deceased so really this case is going to come down to finding evidence to just kind of confirm everything that that Todd has confessed to and that Kayla is providing in terms of information for the police any tools ballistics evidence in this case they're able to locate the gun that killed Charles and then they're going to be able to tie that gun into the if they are able to recover bullets 
from Megan and Johnny, and then ultimately, if if that gun was the gun used back in the Superbike murders, I don't know that it is, but I'm just saying there's a lot of you know potential for evidence in this case just to kind of make sure that Todd is held accountable, that the story that is being told is accurate, and that Todd can't try to wiggle out of, of any of the crimes that he committed here. False confessions is a serious issue in law enforcement investigations uh, for reasons ranging from somebody wanting the notoriety to mental health issues to rewards given for confessions. People will and often do falsely confess. And there's even cases where, you know, the interrogation tactics of the police have led people to false confessions. But a lot of false confessions um, will either be voluntarily false confessions by the person wanting to take credit for something they didn't do, or, as I said, it's going to be the result of difficult or tough interrogation tactic, whether it be um, coming at the person hard or wearing them down over an extended period of time uh, to get them to admit to something that they didn't do. But in this case, I read in the research, basically when Todd gave his confession, he gave details of the crimes, um, including the Superbike murders crime, that, that nobody else would have known, um, stuff that wasn't released. So we, we talk about this, it's, it's kind of what we call holdback information or you know parts of the investigation that is not released to the public or the press or anything along those lines. And the only people that would know a certain aspect of a crime would be the investigators, crime scene technicians, and the person who committed the crime themselves. This allows for weeding out those false confessions, as well as if somebody later on claims they made a false confession, but they have information that only they would have known, uh, that you know is, is going to make the case against them continue to stay strong instead of them being able to say, well, that's all stuff they read in, in on the internet or in the newspaper or something along those lines. So again, I'm not really going to break down certain aspects of the evidence here. Just anything that the crime scene techs are going to be looking for is going to be both to isolate Todd as the only suspect and prevent Todd from making claims at other parties. Now, again, he was in his house, and this is just a property that he owns. So any defense attorney is just going to say, yeah, well, my client owned the property, but that doesn't mean he committed the crimes. Now, in this case, thankfully, again, we have Kayla, a surviving victim of, of his crimes, to be able to say, no, you know, he did this all to me, there's nobody else, but uh, you've seen some very despicable defense attorneys go after victims such as Kayla when, it, if this goes to trial or when they're put on the witness stand that tries to destroy their credibility, tries to you know, poke holes in their story, whatever, to make the jury believe that maybe the victim isn't being 100% honest and, and introduce any amount of doubt into the jury's mind at all. 
So if that's the case, and if this had gone to trial, which that's the other thing, at the time that this crime scene is being investigated, nobody knows what the outcome of this case is going to be. Again, you don't know if he's going to be cooperative, continue to be cooperative, if he's going to take this all the way to trial, if he's going to plead out. So you have to treat it as if this is going to go on trial in the whole world and he's going to get the best defense attorney out there and it's going to try to destroy everything that you've done every every shred of evidence that you've collected um or not collected because that's going to be the big deal too is you could very easily overlook something and say oh it's not important to grab this piece of evidence or to swab this for dna because we already know who did this what if it were to go to trial any defense attorney is going to say, well, had you only swabbed that item, you would have found so-and-so's DNA on it or, you know, somebody, some buddy of his that he let use the property from time to time and that's who actually committed these horrible crimes. It wasn't Todd. So just because you've got somebody in custody and they're appearing to be cooperative, uh, every crime scene has to be treated the same. And so I'm assuming in this case, again, that that, that was the case, that they did treat this this crime scene accordingly and looked for those items and, and collected the evidence that I talked about. So uh, going back to episode one, I mentioned each of these stories, if I get a chance, I'm going to try to highlight, you know, the, the good things, the, the heroes or whatever of this story. And, and in this case, I mean, it's, it's clear cut that Kayla is the hero of this story that, that her actions, as we'll talk about, probably saved other lives so she did what she had to do to survive and i I can't i'm not going to say i have any inkling or idea of, of everything that she had to endure and how she got herself through that just pure will to survive and hopefully you know survive so that justice can be can be served on this monster she could have easily given up i'm sure i'm sure if she decided Either I can't do this anymore and had tried to take her own life some way if she had decided she couldn't do it anymore and she tried to fight Todd and he killed, uh, you know, she knew she would be killed or if she tried to escape, you know, she realized she probably likely would have been killed. So, I mean, if she wanted it to end, I'm guessing she could have made it end, but her will to survive, her will to seek to make sure that this guy was brought to justice, um, you know, two months of, of being held in captivity to be able to do that that like i said I, I definitely give her a lot of credit as, as a person for being able to do that um just some highlights she did go on dr phil and kind of told her story with dr phil while she was on there she told her that um that todd had todd had told her that he killed charles in front of her because doing so he believed would make her more submissive so basically todd's admitting that he probably could have pulled off the crime without charles even being there without charles having to die but not only is charles is todd trying to make you know her more submissive i guess psychologically too he's trying i think he's trying in a way here to tell her that that Charles would still be alive if it wasn't for her. I mean, it's it just another one of those. You're getting destroyed emotionally, physically, and everything like that, and now and he's playing mental warfare games with her as well. 
he admitted as much too. Uh, she, I guess, Todd told her that he hoped that after a certain amount of time, Stockholm syndrome would set in, and that they could be happy together. Um, so as crazy as that sounds, I know Stockholm syndrome is a is a real uh, uh, disorder that that people can suffer from after going through traumatic experiences. Um, but it's not something that you can just will into somebody as Todd was trying to do. Uh, the circumstances have to be right, and by that I mean the, the, the correct person, the correct circumstances. There has to at some point be a, a, a feeling of, of sorrow or like the person that, that is the captor is, you know, has some level of, of human decency to them and as we've discussed what he's done we Todd is not that person so that was never going to happen and despite the fact that he Todd told her that he wanted to be happy together with her I think he told her that he if she cooperated and, and became happy he built her a soundproof room in the house that she could live in that was nicer than the container and, and gave her a bunch of promises and ultimately, though, when Todd led investigators to Charles's grave, they located right by Charles's grave was another freshly dug shallow grave. And they believe that Todd was likely days, if not as close to as hours, away from, from killing Kayla, burying her in the grave. And had that happened, I'm, I'm not saying that that investigators wouldn't have come out and, and found evidence of his crimes because the, the way the timeline worked out, obviously, even if, even if he was hours away and had she unfortunately been killed, they were still going to discover the stuff they discovered that day either way. But it's just another example of, of how sick and twisted his mind was that he was offering her you know forever happiness while he had plans to to kill her and likely start over again with with another couple and do the same thing um they did find charles's car on the property it had been driven kind of into this ravine area it had been spray painted so that it was kind of matching the, the ground cover there and then covered in a bunch of twigs and leaves so the aerial search wouldn't have seen it based on on how it was camouflaged um so I, I, again it's he was going to be located that this property was going to be found um it just thankfully it was done in a time that that kayla could survive this horrible incident so um thankfully kayla did receive a 6.3 million dollar settlement from todd's estate uh, i have to imagine that you know he was successful with his real estate i can't imagine that he was 6.3 million dollars successful but i mean anything is gonna gonna help her heal you know as much as she can to move on if as much as she can from this this terrible incident that she went through and the loss of charles and, and all that i said i can't i can't fathom what she went through i can't uh, imagine being held in captivity and treated like that for for two months at the hands of a monster but um, she's she's definitely a ex an extremely strong person and I hope that she's able to get all the help and recovery that she can 
So that's going to wrap up the the crimes, um, both the the crimes in Woodruff there and the superbike murders that that Todd is being that Todd is responsible for. And like I said, there's there's a lot to get into with Todd himself, and I didn't want to try to rush through that to fit it into you know the last few minutes of this episode. So I will be covering the superbike murders part three, which is going to cover Todd's messed up life and kind of break down some of the um, some of the stuff that led him to become the monster that monster that he is and get into his actual motive for the superbike murders um, as well as what probably motivated him to to do the stuff he did out on the woodruff property so I will be working on that very shortly. I hope to have that up here in the next couple days. Uh, that'll be episode four, which will be Superbike Murders Part 3. So I appreciate everybody uh, sticking with me through here uh, to episode three. I look forward to episode four, and uh, I want to thank you for listening and stay tuned for those future episodes. Again, as I end every episode, I, I want uh, anybody to feel like they can get in contact with me, either at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com, or through my Facebook page at True Blue Crime Productions. Um, if you, this is a work in progress. This podcast, I'm learning as I go. So if you have any suggestions, uh, things you'd like to see, things you'd like to hear, uh, whatever it may be, let me know. I'll do what I can. And then, uh, as always, if if you have the capabilities, you can support me at uh, uh, via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. I'd greatly appreciate that. And I will be starting to do shout outs um, for those Patreon. Uh, sponsorships once I start seeing them come in so appreciate that appreciate you guys uh, listening and uh, talk to you guys later bye